Good morning, my name is Marin and I'll be bringing our reading to you today. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and can be found on page 933 of the Church Bibles. 1 Corinthians 14 and we will be beginning from verse 26 and reading through to 40. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets for God is not a God of disorder but of peace as in all the congregations of the Lord's people women should remain silent in the churches they are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet, or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Well, thank you, Merrin. Brothers and sisters, good morning. Uh, Pete Stedman is my name, Senior Minister here at Norwest. Uh, I need help preaching this morning, so I'm going to pray. And you need help listening this morning, that you might receive God's word with true thanksgiving. So shall we come before our Lord? Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here today. We gather because we love your Son. We gather because we love your Word. We gather because we love your people. Help us hold all that together today, that you might be glorified. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Amen. Uh, brothers and sisters, uh, in staff meeting each week, we uh, start our staff meeting by reading the passage that's going to be preached the following Sunday. We then, as a staff team, wrestle with what we think it means. Then we pray uh, about the passage and how it might impact us personally. And then we pray about how that passage might impact the whole church as we live as God's people under God's word. And this week was no different, so Tuesday morning we read 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40, and we started to discuss it. Uh, and then one of our staff said, hey, don't people say that this is actually one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible? Now, I hadn't heard this before, and I'm not so sure it was that helpful hearing it on Tuesday, to be frank. But it did make a lot of sense of the way that James Lewis broke up this preaching program for us. <laughs> by giving this section to me. He's a good man, isn't he? Uh, And now, having wrestled with this text over the last couple of weeks, I've got to say I do understand why people hold this to be so difficult. So let's start with the obvious. Uh, There are parts of this passage that sound highly objectionable to 21st century ears. You know, whether or not we realise it, We are all living in a time right now of gender dispute. What do I mean by that? For the first time in Western history, as far as I'm aware, we are seeing a move by certain sectors of our society, cultural elites if you like, to dispute and question whether gender, that is male and female, is real or whether it is simply a social construct. That is, for millennia, people have believed that boys and girls, men and women, are different. They look different, they can act differently, they can think differently. But right now we are living within an ideological shift which is starting to question whether this is true in any meaningful way beyond anatomy. I'm sure you know, brothers and sisters, that we are all products of time and space. And our worldview, that is the way we look at the world around us, uh, is absolutely developed by what we see and hear around us. And more and more, have you noticed, we are hearing and seeing the heavy suggestion and sometimes the outright assertion that gender, that is the difference between males and females, is a social construct imposed upon blank slate children by the clothes, the colours, the toys we choose for them, as well as the way that we expect them to behave both within the family and in broader society. So today, as you well know, there is a strong push from both uh, or from uh, the corporate world, the media and uh, sections of the scientific community to say that gender differences are not significant. We have a move towards androgynous fashion for both adults and children. A move towards same-sex marriage where gender shouldn't matter and a move in certain schools in our country to introduce a syllabus that teaches gender fluidity. And so any Bible passage that seems to uphold what God said in the beginning, God created them 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Any passage like this is going to feel to us sitting here today out of step, backwards and potentially misogynistic because of our current climate. That's our first difficulty. There's two more. Our second difficulty is this. If you are a woman here today, maybe even a man actually for that matter, you may have experienced some very negative church teaching and church experiences when it comes to passages that describe gender distinction. Perhaps you have felt that women have been treated as second-class citizens in churches before, where men make all the decisions and where there has been either a significant or subtle devaluing and dishonouring of women. If that's you here today, and there will be some, then passages like this are exceedingly difficult because not only are texts like this culturally and intellectually challenging, they are also deeply emotionally challenging. One final difficulty, and it's not how the passage sounds to our ears, but rather what this passage means. That's to say that there is genuine debate amongst theological academics as to what Paul actually says here and why he says it. Okay, so people aren't sure what he means. We'll get to that in a moment. So with all that said, uh, here's what I'm going to attempt today. Here's what we're going to attempt today. We are going to consider three things. Firstly, tongues and prophecy in the local church setting, like here at Norwest. Secondly, Paul's restriction on women speaking in church. And thirdly, I'll be addressing the very present and very public issue right now in our community, of domestic violence within the church. All right, tongues and prophecy in the church meeting. Today's section, as you heard that read, uh, is all about order in the church. Now, keep in mind that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, a church that we are told as early as chapter 1, verse 10, is in great disorder. And last week, James Lewis actually did an excellent job, didn't he, of helping us understand the nature and place of tongues and prophecy. That being the case... And because I want to spend more time on verses 34 and 35, I'm just going to make some brief comments about what Paul says here. Please uh, just have your uh, passage open in front of you. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 26 and following. Uh, In this section, there are three controlling verses that run through the whole section that show us the the structure of it. Uh, These verses are very helpfully laid out for us at the beginning, middle and end of the section. And they are all about order in the church. So they are verse 26b. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And verse 40, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. See the theme? It's pretty clear. It's order. Our God is a God of order. In the beginning, when God created you and me and this world of his, what he did was bring order out of chaos. Genesis 1 is all about God bringing order to what we're told was formless and void in the old King James Version. Uh, And Paul says that our church gatherings are to reflect, this is the point, Paul says our church gatherings here are to reflect the very character of the God whom we serve. So if our church gatherings are places of disorder and discord, they misrepresent who our God is and how our God acts, which is by bringing order to chaos. 
And this is what lies behind uh, all Paul's instructions in this section. So firstly, Paul addresses order in the church in relation to uh, prophecy and tongues, or tongues and prophecy. Verses 26 to 33, please look at verses 27 and 28. This is where Paul starts by addressing the speaking in tongues. Please note, his instructions here is decidedly negative. So the three instructions he gives are all limiting instructions. It's about closing down, not opening out. Now, this is not because Paul, that's, this is not because Paul is negative or down on tongues as a gift, but probably because speaking in tongues had taken such a prominent place in the life of the church in Corinth. So his three limitations are, uh, firstly, the number of speakers in tongues is to be capped at two or three, no more. Secondly, the speakers of tongues can only speak one at a time. And thirdly, there should be no speaking in tongues if there is not an interpreter present. For Paul, that's how order is to be maintained around tongues. Now, Paul then moves on to addressing prophecy in church. Again, uh, there's some restrictions there. Uh, And again, he starts by saying the number of prophets who speak is to be capped at two or three. But I want to say this is very different to his instruction on tongues. That's all I'm going to say on that, but you might want to ask me in question time or after, if you like. Then there's a second restriction, which is very interesting. See that? Every prophecy is to be weighed up. That's the end of verse 29. Now, what that tells us is that the words of prophets in the New Testament are not to be seen as infallible. In fact, there's an expectation that what prophets say in the church will be a mix of both the valuable and the worthless. Very different to certain orders of prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Third restriction, verse 30, and if a word of revelation comes to someone who is not speaking, the first speaker should stop, the second speaker take over. Presumably, this is to prevent a battle of the prophets going on within the church, to prevent the church becoming like our House of Representatives or the Senate. So where does this leave us at Norwest as we wrestle with these gifts in our church? Let me start with tongues. Uh, in my seven years here at Norwest, I have never, never been asked by anyone if they can bring a word of tongues to the whole church gathering. But if someone ever approached me and said, Pete, uh, I believe that God has given me a word in tongues that's for the whole church, then I think I would respond like this. I think I'd say, wow, okay, great, thank you for that. This has the potential to be deeply encouraging for everyone. Then we'd sit down and read 1 Corinthians 14 together. And together we would see that tongues are to be used in corporate gatherings only when there's an interpreter present. So I think at that point I'd say to the person, look, uh, if God's given you a tongue to speak for the whole gathering, uh, and if God in his word says it must only be spoken in the church with an interpreter, then God will raise up that interpreter so the whole gathering can understand what God would have them know. Therefore, how about you and me commit to praying that God will put that on someone's heart that that word of tongues may be brought to the whole church. And if that person didn't come forward, then I think I would assume that either the person who had the word of tongues or the person who felt they had a word of tongues for the whole gathering was either mistaken in the way they felt or at least mistaken in their timing when it comes to how they felt. That's how I think I'd play that scenario if it happened. Now, when it comes to prophecy at Norwest, I think James's comments last week were incredibly helpful. Uh, if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. But James mentioned that the way churches think about prophecy today and use the word prophecy is much skinnier, much narrower than the way the word was used in the, in the first century and New Testament world. 
Uh, and actually, I think 1 Corinthians 14.26, have a look at that there, 1 Corinthians 14.26, I think Paul is there describing church activities that he understands to be prophetic. Now, what that means is this. I actually think there are many of our current activities here at Norwest that have prophetic edges to them. So singing, okay, you'll see that that's listed there in verse 26. Here at Norwest can have a prophetic edge as the word of God in song is brought to bear on people specifically with where they're at and what they're going through. Have you not experienced singing a song which you have sung before at other times and for whatever reason, for whatever's going on, the song has particular resonance for you in that moment as it encourages you to keep your eyes on Jesus? I absolutely have. I'm sure there's stacks of people here who have experienced that. That could well be prophecy. Our times of prayer as people intercede on our behalf, as people pray God's word back to God, that too can have a prophetic edge as it ministers to us and glorifies Jesus. Again, verse 26, a word of instruction. Uh, This is a form of teaching. In our context, I take this as preaching. Now, that certainly has edges of prophetic about it. I don't know how many times I've had people come up to me and say, Pete, was that sermon just for me? Have you been reading my diary? In fact, I was at a Bible study Thursday night in that room with about nine beautiful women who all said to me that one of the things they love about this place is that the preaching hits them in the heart and and, and we just don't know how you know. Here's the thing. People come up to me and James and Craig and say, you know, was that just for me? We always say, no, of course, no, even if I looked at you, I'm sorry, this, here's my answer now. You come up to me and say, was that sermon just for me? I'm going to say, absolutely, that sermon was prophetically applied to you by the Spirit of God. Now go and do likewise. Let's move from the vexing to the highly vexing. Verses 34 and 35. Women should remain silent in the church. Did you notice we had a female Bible reader? Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Why is this here? Now remember, Paul's big theme that runs through this section is all about order in the church. Paul's already addressed two situations, hasn't he? Where people are to keep silent so that order is maintained. Verse 28, tongues. Verse 30, prophecy. And now we learn here that in some way in the church in Corinth, some women are acting in a way that is disrupting the order that Paul would have in God's church. Let me be crystal clear about one thing before we launch in here. Please listen to this. It seems like Paul is saying that women are not to speak full stop in public worship services in Corinth or like in services here at Norwest like today. Does, this reads like a blanket ban, doesn't it? It, it? it does. But we know it can't be a blanket ban. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, Paul assumes that women both pray and prophesy with some cultural restrictions around that in public worship services. And he makes no comment in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 11 about it being inappropriate, which if you know Paul, he absolutely would if it was. So what this means is this. This can't be a blanket ban. 1 Corinthians 11 shows that. Scripture does not not, uh, contradict Scripture. So if it's not a blanket ban, what does it mean? Well, there are two main ways 
these verses can be understood. Uh, my nor- a normal sermon here is around 3,300 words. This one got up to 7,200. There's a lot left on the floor of my office, literally, actually, on the floor of my office. Um, and so this has been condensed right down. There are two main ways these verses uh, can be understood by Reformed Evangelical Scholarship. And, you know, I just don't know which one's more likely. I, I actually don't know. I can't help you with that. But I also think that's entirely fine because neither interpretation calls into question Paul's main point, which we'll see. The main point is all about order in the church and how certain behaviour is to be restrained to keep that. So, on one understanding of this passage, it could be held that Paul is saying that women are not to speak when it comes to the weighing of prophecy. Please look at verse 29. Paul says two or three prophets should speak. We know that can include women because that, they, that was the case back in 11 verse 5. And the others should weigh carefully what is said. We know that women were free to prophesy in the church, but in 34 we're told that women should remain silent in the churches. So one view is that the activity women are being restricted from is the role of weighing up the authenticity of prophecies that rise in the church gathering. Paul could well be saying that that weighing up is the responsibility of godly men in the church. You know what? That could well be correct. That could well be the correct interpretation here. But there's a second plausible explanation, and it is this. uh, That there was a localised issue of women uh, in the Corinthian church speaking publicly in ways that were damaging. So according to this view, wives in the church were either asking other people's husbands, other people's husbands, Uh, a range of questions, uh, theological, practical, moral. That could have been what was going on. Uh, Or perhaps these wives in the church were publicly tearing down their own husbands with the questions they were asking publicly. So it would be like me preaching on something and then in question time, Bree, my wife, here somewhere, um, would ask a question like this. Uh, So I've got a question. Why aren't you more like that at home? (laughs) Broadly unhelpful. For me, at least. <laughs> that could be what was going on. Now, if, if that interpretation is right, that makes more sense of verse 35. Have a look at that. Paul says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, listen to how one scholar puts it on the screen. Uh, there existed in the Greco-Roman world a strong prejudice against women speaking in public and especially against their speaking to other women's Husbands. Now, on this understanding, uh, Paul's instruction that women ask their own husbands at home reflects two things. Firstly, a cultural, localised issue that was affecting one church, the church in Corinth, what was going on there. And yet, it also reflects Paul's theological perspective that there is an ordering in marriage where Paul believes wives are to respect and honour their husbands. How do we know that? Because Paul's reference to the law, as the law says in verse 34. So on this reading, women were acting disruptively in the church meeting and they were publicly running down their husbands or speaking to men who weren't their husbands, which Paul says is not appropriate because wives are encouraged to love and serve their husbands and not run them down publicly or dishonour them. Okay, so where are we up to? Let me be clear on this. On either understanding that I've put forward, that Reformed Evangelical Scholarship put forward, and please listen carefully to this, Paul is not saying that women should be precluded from praying 
asking questions, making comments, sharing testimonies, or prophesying in church. As long as it doesn't disturb the God-given ordering of God's church. But which interpretation's right? Well, James said, I think maybe both are. You know what? I've got no idea. And I don't think it matters because what Paul is saying to us is clear regardless of why he's saying it. He's saying that order in God's church is important and part of that order recognises a difference between men and women. Which means that to the modern mind, it's not like one interpretation is, a, is palliative uh, sorry, uh, it's not like one interpretation or understanding is palatable and the other offensive, so let's go with this one because it's more culturally uh, acceptable. No, no, on both readings, Paul affirms gender distinction. And remember what we saw at the beginning. We are living in a world where any passage that affirms that God made them male and female will be contested at best and despised at worst. Brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches that God in Trinity, God in Trinity is absolutely equal, does he not? The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit are all equal. They are all perfectly God. As you engage with one member of the Trinity, so they bring the fullness of the Godhead to us. And yet, the Bible says that each member of the Trinity has decidedly distinct and different roles from the other members of the Trinity. Equal and different. And so we are told in the Bible that God made men and women absolutely equal in every way. Equal in creation, equal in redemption. But that God made men and women to have different roles in marriage and in the church. Now just to be clear, this is not a fringe theological perspective taken from one proof text this is what the author of Genesis says in Genesis 2 it's what Paul teaches in Colossians 3 1 Corinthians 11 1 Corinthians 14 Ephesians 5 it's what the apostle Peter teaches in 1 Peter 3 what do they say they all say that men and women are absolutely equal and yet men and women are wonderfully different created by God for different, significant, honourable roles. And this view, Paul's view, stands behind either interpretation of 1 Corinthians 14. Whether Paul is telling women not to speak in relation to the weighing of prophecies in light of his view that authoritative teaching in the church is the role of male elders, like 1 Timothy 2 actually, or whether you think Paul was reminding women to be silent in the church in a particular context in light of the lack of honour that was being shown to their husbands, on either reading there is assumed to be a God-given ordering between men and women and husbands and wives. And not one where men are superior and women inferior, but one where God says men and women are equal and they are different. That men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church as they lay down their lives in sacrificial service for their wives that they might flourish. And as wives are to love their husbands as they help him and submit 
to him and care for him that he might flourish. And when both fulfill their God-given roles, marriage flourishes. This teaching where men are called to humbly and sacrificially take the lead in both the home and the church is not new teaching. But there is something new on the scene, brothers and sisters, and it is this. There is in recent times an attempt from some quarters of our society, listen to this, to link the Bible's teaching and the church's acceptance of male servant leadership in the church and in the home with domestic violence within the church and the home. Now, at this point, I want to acknowledge that even raising this topic may well be painful for some of you sitting here who have either been victims of domestic violence or perpetrators of domestic violence or you've been close to those who have been. But to not address this, my brothers and sisters, is to ignore and potentially put at risk vulnerable people who need our care and help. About one month ago, there was a news story that went out on a range of media platforms. It was the finding of a 12-month investigation into the relationship relationship between domestic violence and religion. The second instalment, which received all the media coverage, uh, was entitled, Submit to Your Husbands, Women Told to Endure Domestic Violence in the Name of God. Can I say there were some very helpful aspects to this report. Reports such as these shine very bright lights on institutions. They also remind us of the terrible human cost of the wicked actions of some men. And these investigations need to happen. When people investigate these things in ways that are unbiased and truthful, then we welcome, do we not? any investigation into any aspect of our church life and practice. If there are any dark spots in the life of God's church, then light, I would say God's light, actually, must be shone into them. For all truth is God's truth, and truth is always, always our friend. Articles such as these raise the profile of topics that are difficult to talk about, and I'm thankful that such articles cause us to ask the question, are we doing all we can and are we in every way possible protecting those at risk both within our community and beyond it as well? But in saying that, there were two aspects of this report that I had difficulty with. The first was the lead quote that many media platforms used to promote this story, which was, in my view, misrepresentative of the research it purported to represent. So I'll show you the quote now, and it's actually, in, you can't read it there, but it's in the byline under the heading there. Research shows that men, that the men most likely to abuse their wives are evangelical Christians who attend church sporadically. Now, this makes it sound like that the most likely people in our community to abuse their wives are evangelical churchgoers. Uh, the fact that they attend church sporadically sort of got left behind. Okay? However, the same research, the identical research that made this 
quote, uh, made this uh, finding, also said this. Conservative Protestant men who attend church regularly are found to be the least likely group to engage in domestic violence. Put simply, put simply, the research found both in America and New Zealand that the more you go to church, the less likely you are to be an abuser. Now, sadly, that seemed to get lost in the promotion of the story. That was picked up by Andrew Bolt, uh, as well as the ABC's own Media Watch, uh, and essentially they found, in their view, against the story. Uh, no comments about the politics or anything of, you know, of Andrew Bolt, but it is what it is. Now, that was the first issue, but there was a second, really more concerning issue with this article that I had, and it was this. Within the article was the inference that it might actually be the Bible's teaching itself on male leadership that provides a culture for domestic violence to flourish. Now, this view was based on research, uh, legitimate research, that reveals that gender inequality is a leading cause of domestic violence. That is, where you have a power imbalance between the genders, between men and women, that is a more likely social context for domestic violence to occur. You know what? That makes sense to me. That makes sense. But then the next step in the argument is this, that male leadership in churches and homes can and often does create environments of gender inequality which might be true, but it certainly doesn't have to. So, one of the subheadings in the article was this, male headship providing the wiring for abuse. Now, we need to be clear at this point by what journalists and social commentators mean by gender inequality. If by gender inequality they mean that men and women are not perceived as fully equal then we agree. There is a problem. And any church where women are not treated as fully equal as men, any organisation, we would stand against and speak against. So we want gender equality. But it does seem that the words gender equality mean more than what I've just described, the equality uh, uh, between the genders. It seems that uh, gender equality is coming to mean not merely the equality of men and women, but, notice this subtle distinction, the sameness of men and women. Not merely the equality, but the sameness. That men men and women should therefore have interchangeable roles and functions across a society, across our homes and across our churches. And it is at that point that those who sit under God's word and know God's word well would choose to differ. Equality does not need to mean sameness. You know, in the Bible, one of the great celebrations of marriage is the coming together of two diverse creatures into a new unity. Difference is seen as a gift, not a social construct. As Archbishop Peter Jensen said in 2012 on the screen, it is always to be understood that the headship of the man brings with it the awesome responsibility to nurture and cherish as Christ loved and cherished his church. To use this, as some have, as an excuse to demand slave-like civility 
or even to engage in physical and emotional bullying is to misuse it utterly and no wife should feel spiritually obliged to accept such treatment. Let me put it in my words. It is not because people understand male headship that they would become domestically violent. It is because they do not understand it well enough at all. So let me be clear on our position at Norwest Anglican on this. We uphold the Bible's teaching on male servant leadership in marriages and in the church where men and women are seen as equal and different to the glory of God. Women at Norwest must have do have voice, influence, respect and honour. And we abhor violence against anyone, and in this context, especially women. We stand against any power structure that promotes and encourages any such situation. We refuse to see women as anything but equals in every sense, equal to men and wonderfully, thankfully, different to men. And we love God's word. And we let it guide our hearts, our minds, our church, our marriages, and all our practice. I'm going to conclude with one final comment on this. I'm going to be very direct, unlike the rest of the sermon. Because churches have been accused, perhaps rightly, of being ambiguous and passive on what I'm about to speak about. There are some men within the church who will wickedly, wickedly, take this wonderful, good, right teaching about the equality and difference of men and women and use it and twist it and pervert it to somehow justify their cowardly and evil dominance of their wives. I trust it would never happen at Norwest, but we are not so naive to believe that it couldn't. Brothers in Christ, if that is you, repent of your wickedness. And do not fool yourself that God hears your prayers. He doesn't, actually, if you do not treat your wife with consideration and respect. That's 1 Peter 3. Come and speak to me, please. Together we will wrestle with what true, real, deep, sacrificial love, repentance, forgiveness and grace looks like as you seek to keep the promises that you made to your wife. And women here, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you are fearful or at risk of any violence, be that verbal, psychological, physical or sexual, I promise that our church will stand with you walk with you and seek justice for you through this. Come and speak to Jody or me anytime and we will protect and care and honour you as your husband should and as God would have us. May God continue to make us this cross-shaped church 
as we seek Jesus and as we love his word. May, may we here at Norwest be so different to the world around us, which waxes and wanes, and so compelling to the world around us as we live out our lives, our marriages, our church life, our family life that reflects the God who made us, that reflects the God who saves us. Let us pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we love your word. We, we love it. Uh, even the hard parts, even the parts that make our heads hurt, even the parts that on first blush can't seem to be right, we love it, Father. And we love that we can slow down and read your word and see more of who you are through it. Will you make us a church that honours you and has your order within it in every way possible? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.